You know, it was inevitable that in our consideration of Jesus, who the real Jesus is, not just kind of what we think or what our Sunday school impression is of Jesus, but who Jesus is in a 360-degree kind of view, teacher, healer, last week kind of the warner, the, the advocate that there's ways in which we can miss the kingdom that God has given to us. And we can miss it not just because of bad things, but of good things like family and etc. It's inevitable that in our journey we would have to come to the last week of the life of Christ. And part of the reason why it's inevitable is that the gospel spends so much time talking about the last seven days of the life of Christ. Now, best we can tell, Jesus lived 33 years. And you could think that he wrote a biography. That could be pretty lengthy, even though he only lived 33 years. But the gospel writers spent an incredible amount of time just focusing on the last seven days of the life of Christ. Mark, who has 16 chapters, starts looking at the life of Christ in chapter 11. So five chapters out of 16 are devoted to seven days in the life of Christ. John, gospel, 21 chapters. He starts in chapter 12. Almost half of his book is dedicated to the last week of the life of Christ. Luke, 24 chapters. Starts in on the life of Christ in chapter 19. The last week of the life of Christ in chapter 19. Large percentage of time focused in those last seven days. And in Matthew's gospel, the 21st chapter is where he starts. It's got 28 chapters altogether. He focuses in on the last day of the life of Christ. And we come today to the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday, right? So you've got to preach about the triumphal entry. But it actually fits in pretty well with what I want to talk about today, this idea of Jesus as king. You know, most of us, when we think about the triumphal entry, we, we kind of have these images from our childhood that this was just kind of this spontaneous celebration that broke out, that Jesus was just kind of wandering in with the crowd, right? You know, there's literally millions of pilgrims pouring into the city. The estimates are um, actually about 30 years after this point in time. They did a survey, and there were a quarter of a million lambs that were sacrificed as a part of the Passover. In order to be able to sacrifice a lamb, you had to have at least 10 people. So that means there were 2.5 million people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. People were flocking there. Jesus is in the midst. And we kind of get this impression, don't we, that as Jesus walking around, he's being kind of innocent, laying a little low, you know. And some of the people said, hey, that's Jesus. I I think that's the prophet from Nazareth. That's the guy who's been doing all the miracles. And they start kind of celebrating a little bit. And Jesus kind of gets swept up in it. And they pick him up and they stick him on a donkey. And, you know, in they go into the city in the midst of all this fan and uproar, all this fanfare. And we kind of have this idea that Jesus was kind of passive in the whole thing, right? But I want to tell you as... We look deeper at the story. That's not true at all. Jesus wasn't passive in it. He orchestrated it. Jesus caused it. Now, he didn't necessarily line up all of the multitudes, but he got the ball rolling. I mean, Ken read this passage for us earlier, right? In Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there with me to Matthew chapter 21. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text on page 833. If you're using your own Bible, which I always encourage you to bring, you'll, Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament, and this is we're in the 21st chapter. I'm not going to reread what Ken has already read for us, but we clearly see in Matthew's account that as they were headed into Jerusalem, they were kind of rounding the top of a hill at the village of Bethpage, and they were coming down from the Mount of Olives, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, I want two of you, to go into the village ahead of you, most of us think, most scholars think they sent him over to Bethany. 
That was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus had spent a lot of time there, had a lot of relationships there. He sends them over there. He says, when you, when you enter into the village, you're going to see a donkey tied there in a colt. I want you to grab that donkey and colt. Now, he only needed the colt, but the colt would be kind of hard to lead without its mother, right? I mean, it's going to want to stay to it. The mother's going to be freaking out, the whole thing. So he says, just get both of them. Bring them back, okay? And bring them back to me. If anyone stops you, just say, the Lord has need of it. It's kind of, in the reference to Lord there would be that they already had an idea of who Jesus was. They had a relationship with Jesus already. Jesus is getting the whole ball rolling. He's getting it started. The whole experience of the triumphal entry is transformed when you and I understand that it wasn't this spontaneous uproar that occurred, but it was an orchestrated demonstration by Christ to communicate a message. When I look at the triumphal entry, it's a coming out party. All the way through the Gospels, right? Some of you have come to me and asked the question, what's up with Jesus healing somebody and saying, hey, don't tell anybody, you know? You know, or, or saying, you know, hey, you know, that, get it. I, I, you guys get it. Like we said to the disciples, you know, you guys get it now, but you got to keep that to yourself. Don't tell anybody else. It's like Jesus, all the way through his life at this point in time, has been kind of ducking and dodging and trying to stay out of the limelight. Every time the crowds got too big, he'd move on to somewhere else, right? I mean, he's trying to run underneath the radar. No more. No more. Triumphal entry is no more. He's putting himself out there front and center. And this is what he's declaring. I'm the king. Deal with it. All the way through his life, he's been ducking and dodging, doing all this teaching, etc. He's been asked questions, are you really the Christ? By what power do you do this? And he's, he's not really giving straight answers or whatever. And then he gets to this point, and he orchestrates the whole thing, and he rides into the city, and he's declaring as loud as he possibly can, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. Deal with it. You see, in this whole imagery, he's riding in on this colt. It's the imagery of a king coming into his city. He's coming on a colt that's never been ridden before. When every, in order to be usable to God, it had to be virgin, it had to be fresh. When they, when they were bringing the ark into Jerusalem, they carried it on a cart that had never been used for anything before. This colt had never been used for anything before. It was carrying God's Messiah. They're putting garments out on the road. You can look back in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, and they did the exact same thing when they were, when they were in the coronation of Jehu as the king. It was a symbol, it was a symbol that they were embracing Christ as the king. Then you got the whole palm things, and we, we really don't find the foundation of this in the New Testament, but we do find it in the intertestamental history that went on between Malachi and Matthew. You know, there was a period in there when the area of Israel was, was really kind of a pawn between the successors of Alexander the Great. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies and others were jockeying to get control of the area. And the poor Jews were stuck in the middle. And there was a time when this king by the name of Antiochus had control over the area. And he thought the high priesthood was a political office, not a spiritual office. So he just kept selling it off to the highest bidder. And they always had a a Hellenistic, or they were trying to convert Jerusalem into a a center for Greek culture and Greek theology and ideas. And so literally one time when the Jews were, were resisting and you know, not too happy with these high priests that were buying the, the role. They weren't even priests by, by ancestry or anything else. They, they, there was a rebellion, and he came in, and he squashed it, and he went into the temple, and he tore down, the, te- he tore down the, the altar, and he put up an altar to the Greek god Zeus, and he offered a pig in the midst of the altar. Well, this just sent the, Israel, the, the Orthodox Jews just went berserk, and they rallied around a family that we came to know as the Maccabees. And at a time when they were able to push Antiochus out and they were able to rededicate the temple and get it 
sacred again to be used as a part of that welcoming experience as Judas Maccabees rode into the city. They laid out palms in front of them. This was our deliverer. And so this whole thing is this incredible message. And then what does Jesus do when he gets into the temple? Let's read a little further. You got your Bibles out. Let's pick up with verse 12. He gets into the, to Jerusalem there singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a messianic claim out of Psalm 118 and other places. It's the, it's the language of the king, if you will, God's king. And then he said, look at verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex, and he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children in the temple complex cheering, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are crying out? And Jesus said, Yes. That's a yes of affirmation. Yeah, I hear what they're saying, and you know what? They're right. I am the Messiah. (laughs) Have you never read, he goes on to say, you have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. It says, then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus gets into the city. He's already sent up the flares, you know, saying, I am the king. Deal with it. What does he do when he gets to the city? Just slips down some back alleys, find a place where nobody will find him, right? He goes right into the middle of the war zone and he starts throwing the money changers and the, and the, the ones who were off, you know, selling the, the sacrifices that could be used in the temple. He starts tossing them out, claiming authority over the temple. I'm king. Deal with it. Then he starts healing people. An act of God. I'm God's messenger. I'm the king, the Messiah. Deal with it. People start celebrating him as God's chosen one. The leaders get incensed about the whole thing. And Jesus says, I agree. What they're saying is right. Deal with it. You need, as we think about the kingship of Jesus, and that's what the triumphal entry is all about. It's about Jesus saying, I am the king. Deal with it. One of the things that you and I need to understand is that Jesus is a bold king. He steps into the city and he says, you've got two choices. You can accept me or you can reject me. Got to make up your mind by Friday. You can accept me or you can reject me. You can't see me as just a teacher. You can't see me just as a miracle worker. You can't just see me as a healer. You can't see me as just a prophet. You can't see... I am the king. You can accept that or you can reject it. There is no middle ground. So we have this bold king who steps into the city and says, I'm the king. What are you going to do with it? (laughs) What's interesting as I was preparing this this week was, you know, the same thing's happening today. Jesus steps into our lives and he says, I'm the king. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? In reality, really, there are only two types of people in the world. The people who have embraced Christ as king and the people who have rejected Christ as king. And there's no middle ground. There's no ground like saying, well, I really respect Jesus. I admire him. I think he was a great figure of history. That doesn't work. Jesus says, I'm king. If that's what you think, you've rejected me. If Jesus is a good idea, a great model, somebody who brings you some hope in the midst of whatever, but, but you know, he's really not, he, you've rejected him because he's king. He steps in. He's bold. And he says, I'm the king. Deal with it. What's your decision? What's your choice? He created all of this. I mean, certainly the throngs. I mean, they were literally, he was probably in the midst of of hundreds, if not thousands of Galilean pilgrims that were making their way into Jerusalem on this day. And when all the hoopla got started, they got caught up in the uproar. But guess who pushed the rock to get it going? Who got that snowball rolling down the hill so it turned in one of the, it was Jesus. He said, hey, go get a donkey. Bring it over here. Let me get on it. Let me start riding. Lay out some garments there. 
get some palms. Let's get this. Because I'm the king. And he stepped into our lives and he says, I'm the king. He's a bold king. Are we treating him as a bold king? But he's a different kind of king as well. He's a gentle king. <laughs> the, the, some, on those of us who were removed by 20 centuries from the time of Jesus, the imagery gets lost on us. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, it's the symbol of, the king, of a king. But kings rode into cities on one or two animals. They rode in on horses or they rode in on donkeys. If they rode in as, on a horse, they were riding in as a mighty warrior. Either they were just victorious having conquered your city, and they're rubbing it in your face, or they're riding in with the idea of, I can deliver you. I've got all the strength. And so there's that kind of imagery. When you rode a donkey, you rode in and says, I come to bring you peace. I'm a king of peace. I come with gentleness in my arms as I gather you up kind of idea. It's interesting that, that many see Jesus here. He's, he's riding with boldness as a king of peace into a city, trying to turn it into what God had always intended it to be a light to the Gentiles, and, a, and, a, and to bring glory and praise among the nations. But he rides in, and it's, just think about this, though. Where, where's Jesus riding into? Who's got control, religious control, over the city? It's, it's, it's the high priest, right? The priest, the Sanhedrin, those guys? Are they on Jesus' side at the moment? So Jesus is riding into a war zone as a king of peace. <laughs> it's almost like the imagery he shows up for, to a gunfight with a squirt gun. You know, I mean, that's really kind of... He knows that he is drawing the battle lines. He says, but I'm going to fight this battle differently than ever before. I'm not gathering up an army. We're not drawing swords. He says, I've come to win this battle a whole different way. The picture of the temple cleansing at this point starts to come to life. And, you know, what was happening in the temple was a necessary thing. It was out, the temple was made up of a series of courts, in case you're not really familiar with it. The outer courts were called the court of the Gentiles. That's a place where anybody could go. Then there was the court of Israel. And that's where men, female and male Jews could go. Then there was the court of men, then the court of priests, and then there was like the, which is where the, the sacrifices were alter, offered. And then there was the, the temple proper, which was like the Holy of Holies in the, in the area immediate around that. So out in the court of the Gentiles, there's all this commotion going on. And some of it was necessary. As a requirement, by law, by biblical law, they needed to offer a temple tax. They needed to offer a, a foundational gift to the temple it had to be done in special currency so these people are coming from all over the countryside they're coming from other nations they get there they can exchange their money so they're they're going to the money changers and saying hey you know i i got a dollar when i went over to rwanda right i had a stack of money literally thousands of dollars in u.s dollars this guy came over it was interesting you know the, the exchange rate is 200 and 600 um, rwandan francs to the dollar and the largest bill they have is a 5000 Well, the guy who came over to exchange my money, only had two, the bank would only give him 2000 So I needed like $3,500, right? He gave me 1.6 million francs in 2000s. It was a bag. It was just a big, huge stack, you know? But he had to, you got to change the money. So these guys come in, they got to change their money. The money changers, they're there to provide a service to facilitate the people being able to worship God. Same with the guys who were selling the doves. It's a basic offering, basic sacrifice, you know? And so, and part of it was that you had to offer an animal that had been approved by the priest as unblemished, as fit to be offered to God. And so these were certified. These were FDA-approved kind of, you know, sacrifices. So they're selling those. The problem was that it had all gotten out of hand. You needed to change 
a dollar into a special coin, well, we're going to charge you 50 cents to do that. And if you only got a five and you need four ones back, we're going to charge you another 50 cents for that. And all the proceeds went to the high priest. A couple of turtle doves outside the temple, you can get them for four or five bucks. Inside the temple, there's 75. And they had taken something that was supposed to be about God and they made it about them, right? They were supposed to be there to help people worship God. And instead, they had made it about them. What can we get from this? You know what, folks? That's, that's the picture of sin, isn't it? When the servant takes the place of the master, when the focus gets off of God and the focus gets on to us, when it's not about God, but it's about us. And Jesus steps into this and he, and he tips us all over. And it's, it's a message he's saying. And he, so he's ridden into this war zone as a king of peace. And, he throw, and, he's, and he's literally turning over the tables of sin. And, and it's like he's communicating, I'm the master and I'm ready to take the place of the servant. Now, I was listening to one of Tim Keller's sermons this week, and, and I, don't, I don't usually do that very often, but I was listening to his sermon in this particular text, and, and, and just a wonderful insight. I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? Sin is when the servant takes the place of the master, but the gospel is when the master takes the place of the sinner. Jesus comes as a gentle king. He, he's not going to win his kingship through force. He's going to win it by sacrifice, by giving himself for us. And it just jumps out of this text to us as we look at it with this, these fresh eyes. I think Jesus is also a king of promise in this text. It, it, in the cleansing of the temple, if you will, there's this symbolism that he's opening up the doors for us to get back to worshiping God, right? All this distraction is going on out there and the clanging, and etc. And, and, he, and he's throwing those guys out and he drives them out, you know, and he's, and he's opening it all up so that the nations, all the Gentiles, as well as all the Israelites, as well as all the Jewish men, and all the priests can really connect with God. That's a word of promise. And it's only in Matthew do we, we read that the blind and the lame were coming to him. And he was healing them. A symbol of promise that when we come to Christ, when we come to the King, there's healing for us. It comes in all shapes and sizes, but there's healing for us. Jesus is the King of promise because he fixes that which is broken, our lives. He fixes them of sin. And he makes it possible for you and I to live in the presence of God because there's reconciliation through the offering that he gives. He's a king of promise. Just some kind of concluding kind of thoughts. You know, I, I told you last week that one of the goals of my preaching is just to launch you on a dialogue with God. And I want to try to do that today as well. And here's some of the questions that are rattling around in my own heart. Is Jesus really my king? Is Jesus really your king? And most of us would say, well, I'm in church, aren't I? That's a pretty good sign. Jesus is my king. You know, I, I was, I, I, every couple times a month, I gather together with some other pastors from the area to pray. And this week, uh, we were together, and, and one of them was talking about, he, he, he'd just been doing some fresh reading in the book of Revelation, and there's lots of ways to understand the, the way that's all that's going to unfold and pre- and post-millennial and all that kind of stuff. He said, but, but you know, you have this perspective of being pre-millennial, and, and, he think, and there's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. A thousand years of perfect peace. God's plan fully implemented. At the end of the thousand years, Satan and his forces managed to slip out of heaven, slip out of, uh, out of uh, uh, being in bondage. They slip out of spiritual jail, if you will. And they've got access to the earth again. And after a thousand years of perfect peace, one out of three people chooses to go back to the devil. Sometimes we follow Christ as king, not as a heart issue. You know what I mean? They didn't have any option, right? Those, that third... They, they didn't see any other option. We only, there's only one king. I gotta do this. But boy, if I had an option, 
a lot of us, you know, we, we, we have this sense that I know that Christ is the right way and, and I'm going to try to do that, but our hearts really aren't in it. We'd really rather have something else. Jesus says there's really only two types of people in the world. Those who have embraced me in their hearts as king and everybody else. So who are we today? You know, if you know that you've been rejecting Christ and you want to take a step forward and say, I want Jesus to be my king. This morning he rode into my life on a donkey, declaring himself as the king. You can take that step. I encourage you to, you know, to, to, to embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord like Stephen gave testimony this morning in the baptistry. Jesus is my king. I want to walk with him from my heart. You can take that step today. In fact, if you're ready to take that step today, one of the things I'd love for you to do is your connection card on the back place that says, I choose today to become a follower of Christ. And just check that off. And, and you know what? Don't put it in the offering plate <laughs> when it goes by. But carry that out and hand it to me directly. Because I'd love to give you a special Bible and set up a time to, come to, to see if we can make sure you get launched on this new journey as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ in a positive way. Jesus comes boldly saying, I'm the king. Deal with it. Is he the saving, gentle king who's fulfilling all that promise within us? Or have we rejected him? Is something less than king. Let's pray together. Father, the amazement probably starts way, way, way beyond Matthew 21. The amazement really starts that Jesus came as all, at all in human form, be our Savior. Father God, we thank you for this word today. That there needs to be absolutely no doubt in our minds that Jesus knew who he was, why he was here, and what place he was supposed to have in our lives. God, thank you for Jesus, the King. Show us if he's really king in our lives. Show us if we've just been fooling ourselves, some of us for decades, that we really embrace Christ as king. God, give us humility. Whether we, we know that we've never done that and we know we need to take that step, or whether we think we've done it, but now as we search it out, we, we really think, man, maybe not. God, give us humility so that we might live with Christ as the king of promise. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing a final song to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As we begin to sing, I invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering, and you can place your connection cards in there. Again, if you're ready to take a next step today, I look forward to visiting with you. Let's sing today.